This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 492 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Akshay Nanavati. Now, Akshay is originally from India, but moved to the U.S., ended up enlisting with the Marines, serving overseas, transitioning out, and ultimately found himself on a path that took him through some mental and physical endurance feats that you will find incredible. Most recently, he also authored the book Fearvana. So before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Hit subscribe, leave feedback, I love reading your feedback, and most importantly, leave a rating. Every single five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier and easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Akshay Nanavati. Enjoy. Well, actually, I want to start by saying thank you so much um, for reaching out. Thank you so much for coming on today. Um, Thanks for having me. Thank you. And I know that I normally ask this question. You have a quite an unusual response, which I love. Where are we finding you on planet Earth today? 
Currently, I am in India, in Bangalore, India. Just got here after climbing Denali and on my nomadic wanderings all over, but here for a couple more days. No big thing. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me about that. I mean, before we get into your life stories, it's so you, you know, we're obviously trying to do this. We had the whole COVID thing going on. So um, tell me about your recent climb and being able to see your family. Yeah, you know, I was, so I was on uh, I was on Denali for three weeks. This was the first time I had been in in the wilderness for an extended period of time since 2012, since I did a one month ski crossing of Greenland. And I'd been kind of fiending to get outside. I've done many trips here and there, like five days in Norway for a few you know few trips and kind of mini expeditions, but nothing an extended period of time. And now I've been blessed to be in a good spot with the business financially to be able to take that time off. I was actually scheduled to go do a pol- couple of polar expeditions in Svalbard and, and through the North Pole. Those got canceled because of COVID. So then I was going to go to Nepal to climb a 7,000 meter peak. That got canceled because of COVID. So I was like, what else can I do? So Denali came up and Denali is like, I mean, stunning experience. It's kind of been on the bucket list for a little while anyway. And so it was perfect timing and the experience was amazing. We did not make it to the summit because of just insanely brutal storms on the mountain. I think you might have seen the video that I shared about it. The storms are were gnarly. So we got to high camp at 17,000 feet, but made the right call because it's always better to, you know, come back alive to, to, to fight another day. So but nonetheless, beautiful experience. Very grateful for all of it thrived out there. And it's you know, epic in its own right, but training for many other future expeditions I have lined up. And then when I got back from the mountain, travel restrictions had opened up. So I thought, you know, let's let's come to India, spend a little bit of time with the family. I'm, I'm able to work from wherever there's a Wi-Fi connection. So kind of seeing my family while working from here, because I've come about once a year just to you know see the, see the parents and spend some time with them while between all my all my adventures and my expeditions all over. Beautiful. Well, you know, we saw some startling images from in- India somewhat recently. What are the travel restrictions like there? Because I can't still go back to the UK yet. So it's interesting that you exactly. were able to go there. I think, I mean, partly I think because I'm an OCI, which is an overseas citizen of, Indi- overseas citizen of India, I think if, it, if they were doing it with uh, just tourists, they wouldn't allow wouldn't allow tourists to come. I believe that's the rule. And I'm an American citizen. So going back between these two countries, are it's easy for me because I'm essentially a it's sort of like a dual passport. So I have kind of a, you know, passport to both. So I know, I know COVID got really bad here. Me and my family, we're very blessed to be in a position where we're at. Um, I mean, we're outside of Bangalore in this literally what is an oasis is this stunning villa complex, like couldn't be more blessed. So we feel very grateful every day to be in, in this position and we do what we can to help the people around us. I mean, we, my family's been supporting the villages around the community in every, in hospitals and stuff like that. But it's all been good. I mean, life has been pretty normal out here personally for me, you know, so, and, and I acknowledge that, that I'm very grateful. Like, I'm, I'm very lucky to have that on a regular basis. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting as well to get the perspective from all these people. You talked about um, Nepal. I had the guy Nims, Nimsdai, who uh, yeah. is Nepalese. Yeah. He's a Gurkha, just a phenom. Beast. Um, but yeah. he was talking about, you know, how COVID had impacted the Sherpas there and how the poverty had hit because they weren't, you know, being able to earn any money. Um, and then, you know, like you said, you talk about some of these images, but if, you know, if you think about, you know, Mumbai or some of these places, obviously there is some inherent, um, you know, overcrowding, ill health going on anyway. So it's, yeah. it's good to hear that as parts of India that you're not, you know, seeing this kind of death and gloom, doom and gloom that we see on the, on the screens. Yeah. Inevitably, the news is that's what all you're going to see, right, is is and I understand I'm not saying that part doesn't exist. It is there. And it's always heartbreaking to see. But that's not the entire picture. There's nothing newsworthy about 
life life being normal you know what i mean so you're not going to see that right yeah uh but it, but it was heartbreaking to see some of that and i i know uh we I mean we we know my family and i know people who've been affected by by uh covid for sure in very hard ways so as we know all around the globe right absolutely and that's the thing it, it we know it's a thing you know it's just you know what magnitude is it actually at yeah yeah and what can we what can we do about it as we keep moving forward absolutely well you mm-hmm. talked about you're in in india now um Tell me chronologically, so starting at the very beginning, tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family unit, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. Yeah, I was born in India, in Bombay, India. Uh, my dad worked for 3M for 27 years. So we moved around a lot because of that. And uh, I have one old, one older brother born in Bombay. We moved from Bombay to Bangalore to Singapore to Austin by the time I was 13. So we moved around a lot because of my dad's job. But he was, I mean, we weren't, when I was born, we weren't, he wasn't, extremely wealthy he kind of was rising up the ranks in his corporate career but we certainly weren't poor by any means you know i would say kind of middle class to lower middle class and then he rose up the ranks have been very successful in his life since then so we're in a good spot now now when you look back uh, i know you've, i'm sure you've been asked this in other interviews before but it, but childhood to me is very pertinent you know i think especially when people have struggled with mental health later you know all the people i've had on here that you know childhood trauma is definitely uh one of the significant factors um, you know, you move not only city to city, but country to country. You know, your dad was obviously busy and, and I'm sure not able to be present all the time. Um, what were the pros of that childhood, but also what were the cons when you look back? Great question. You know, pros for me, we were blessed to, like, I could not have asked for a better, better family. My parents, loving parents, put me in best schools every place that we went to, you know, even if at the risk of their struggling to work harder, my dad, like, doing whatever needed. Uh, I was blessed with a great childhood, certainly no childhood trauma. The moving around, it, you know, I got to see so much of the world. I got to make friends all over the world. And I was, I was very easily, I was, I was, I could adapt very easily. So there were some pros to that, like when every place we lived, like when we lived in Singapore, my parents from a young age always felt like travel was one of the most valuable things for education, like to teach you about the world and about yourself. And I didn't obviously fully appreciate it at the time. Now I do. But we went to all over like Southeast Asia, Australia, China, Europe. Like we've, I was blessed to experience so much of the world, you know, and I'm very grateful for just loving parents, the life I got to experience. Now, as far as the cons of moving around, you know, being by being very adaptable, I was very impressionable as well. And it made me, every time I moved, I did a lot of things to, to want to fit in, to, uh, to, to adjust to my environment. And as a result, I thrived in every environment because I was fitting in, right? I made friends in every environment. But the dark side of that was like when I moved to Austin at 13, soon after moving to Austin, I got very heavily into drugs and into alcohol. I mean, very heavily in it. I, I lost two friends to that lifestyle and I was heading down that path myself. You know, and I was, I mean, I was just a world of self-destruction. I still have scars on my arm from cutting myself, from burning myself, just this consumed by self-destruction. And my parents have asked me, you know, what could they, they didn't know all of it at the time. Now they do. They, like, what could we have done differently to prevent you going down that path? And truth be told, you know, it's, again, it's not that I experienced any traumatized childhood or anything like that. I went into Austin soon after moving there. I got into this group of friends and I don't blame anybody else. I take responsibility for my actions today, but as a young child, you're impressionable to your environment. So when that became my vehicle for expression, I was the guy who pushed the line. Like today I do, as you know of me, I'm sure we'll get into it. I pushed the line in very positive ways, like mountain climbing, ultra running, polar expeditions, things like that. But 
that was my vehicle of expression. And so because I got consumed in that world, because I wasn't sure who I was moving around a lot from country to country, adapting just to fit in, wanting to be the cool kid in the group, the crazy kid in the group. So I was like the guy I'm going to like push as hard as possible. Me, me and one of the guy in the group who started doing going from marijuana and alcohol into harder drugs. We were the first two to start in our group and he ended up eventually ODing on heroin like that could have very easily been me. You know, so that was the cons in some ways. And like, I, I don't perceive this as a con now, but like when people ask me, where are you from? I don't really have a good question, answer to that question today because I'm from any, from everywhere and nowhere. And again, that's not a con to me. Like, I love it. I genuinely feel not to throw out a cliche, but like a citizen of the world. I mean, I feel kind of at home everywhere I go, but I think just the moving around, I like my brother struggled with it a lot more than I did, you know? And I think that was the initial looking back at my life. That was the challenge was just becoming very impressionable to external environment and letting that define me and letting that shape my behavior. Yeah. And did you find that um, just thinking about, you know, all these different cities that you were in, the moving around, that you maybe were in some good tribes, but then, you know, you're basically plucked from that tribe and now you're, you're tribeless in a psychological way? It, totally. I mean, yeah, exactly like how you put it. I mean, I had great, I was blessed with great friends everywhere we moved. I was able to make friends easily and had a good community of friends in India, in, in Singapore. Some of them I'm still kind of in touch with today, you know, but, and moving to Austin, it's again, these were not bad people. They were great kids. Great. Like, again, some of them I'm kind of in touch with, or at least through Facebook friends, whatever that means. But, uh, but, uh, but you know, they, like the rest of us, we, we all young, stupid kids, you know, we made some mistakes. Some of them went on some darker paths. Many, most of them from my gathering have kind of gotten out of that world as well and have found themselves in a more positive environment. But yeah, like you said, you're constantly kind of losing tribe and having to then find tribe again, right? And, and, and just human psychology, when you do that, it's important you fit in because I mean, evolutionary speaking, if you don't adapt to the tribe and you're ousted from the tribe, that meant death, right? So I, I became adaptable and impressionable. And that, that skill of adaptation is one that is invaluable today. I mean, I have a strong ability to, you put me on the Denali, to, like I was crushing it, thrived on the mountain, you know, storms hit, no matter what the world throws at me, today I've gotten to a place where I'm able to adapt very easily. But instead of being now impressionable and completely at the effect of my environment, I now know myself enough, know who I am, who I want to be that I don't just you know, I can adapt, but I don't have to change my identity to that. I can still, I, I still have my path clear, if that makes sense. No, it does completely. Now with, yeah, myself obviously being from overseas and moving to the States, um, you know, Austin is, is a pretty eclectic city compared to some. Yeah. Um, how, how were you received being Indian coming into this country? Was it a positive experience, a negative? I per great question too, because it was funny when we were in Singapore, this was way back before like internet was, a you know, kind of the way it is today. So when we moved from Singapore to Austin, my friends in Singapore, they were all like, dude, you're moving to Texas. They're going to hate you because you're brown, you know? So I, I was expecting this thing that like cowboys on horses with cowboy boots and <laughs> cowboy hats and everybody's going to hate me because it's like, you know, people are racist or whatever. I didn't know anything. You don't, you know, again, you don't have a sense of what you're moving to. And then as we know, Austin is like not like, I mean, it's completely, you know, it's a super kind of hipster vibe, liberal city, cool city. Like it's one of my favorites. I love Austin. It's a great city. And so I never personally experienced any sort of races my mom did she she got jarred pretty early because she moved here and she was in an indian outfit at the grocery store and somebody told her i don't remember if it was in austin but it was somewhere in america when we her first moved so she's that always that planted a very kind of negative impression of our of our move here and somebody told her go back to your country you know so that left a mark in her understandably but i never personally as a young kid experienced it or throughout my life uh have never really experienced it. i think the only time i would say and i never took it seriously was after 9 11 i got stopped at airports 
all the time. You know, <laughs> look, look at me, right? So, uh, <laughs> but no, nothing serious that I, I never, like, never really experienced it. Yeah, no, and again, it's, it's the ignorant few that are going to do that. Yeah, you're going to get what you're going to get. And I look, brown dude with the beard, I would just kind of laugh it off, you know, like one, two, one funny story. One dude, one time I got stopped and the dude was like, sir, this is a random security check. We're just going to do this, this kind of tell me what we're doing. Have you ever done this before? I go, dude, look at me. You think this is my first time? And he kind of, <laughs> she, he kind of sheepishly smiled like random security check. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, whatever, whatever, man, it's all good to your thing. So, but yeah, other than that, never, I mean, not in the Marines, not ever did I ever experience anything remotely like Jen in the Marines we all joked about it I was I was called the terrorist and I have a picture of me when I was in Iraq pretending to make a bomb with IED sports we found because like dude not a body you're the terrorist you know but it was never like anything serious that was all all in, in jest yeah well I, and I think that's what I feel about you know most people I don't think most people are racist but again especially at the moment you know with with the polarizing that's going on it's portraying like all this this all this race do this and all this race do that and all the exactly. cops do this and it's so sad yeah. to hear it's 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 absurd i totally agree it frustrates the hell out of me like it it's yeah like you said it paints this paintbrush over everybody under this umbrella category and because the news i mean like the other day i was just in the u.s and i, I was sitting in the airport you know and i saw this sikh gentleman an asian woman a black person a white person like all these mixed people and we're standing there just normal like there's nothing newsworthy about that moment right it's just people normally living so inevitably you don't see that in news but you turn on the news i mean when i when i was i've been in moments in america where family in india will call me and be like oh, what's going on like it looks like it, i mean from the news over here it looks like america is this horrible racist country where everybody's attacking one and i'm like that's not the reality on the ground it's just that's what we're seeing on this one spectrum and then yeah it people get people like I mean, it's the ignorant few, but who all cops are this way or all X, Y, Z person, X race is this way. And that obviously, as we know, that's absurd. That's not even remotely how it is, you know. But yeah, it's <laughs> it's frustrating to see the world. And especially, like you said, in the polarizing world today, because it, it get and then gets sort of fed and built on on this sort of the social media platforms and all that. It, it, it kind of it, it, it you know, it, it just builds that snowball gets bigger and bigger of this kind of garbage because of the way information is now fueled across the world in such rapid ways right so inevitably then to a certain degree so is ignorance you know oh 100 percent. well you ended up doing some incredibly you know incredible feats of endurance so tell me about when you were school age what kind of sports or athletics you were doing then when I was younger, uh, before moving to Austin and getting heavily into drugs, obviously I wasn't much into sports then. But before that, I was uh, very, very much an athlete. Like I used to do short distance, like the 100 meters, 200 meters, a lot as a kid, playing rugby, playing like everything. When we moved to Singapore, I would play cricket. I would like every sport, super, always downstairs. Like we also didn't have the video games and, and, and the stuff that we do today. But it was like my parents had a rule, like I want you downstairs playing. And so I was always very, very into fitness. Uh, and, you know, that that got lost once I got into Austin and it got channeled in that very negative way. But thankfully that changed as well. You know, like, as I said, I was heading down this dark path, but watching, it was the movie Black Hawk Down, which have you ever seen? Yeah, actually I've had, I've had, um, uh, uh, oh my goodness. Robert Duran. Have I got that first name right? Mike Duran. Mike Duran. Yeah. yeah, And then uh, Matt Eversman's been on a couple of times. So yeah, two people that are actually there. I remember telling me that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I even saw that. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, that story changed my life, man. Like that story was the trigger when, when Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar volunteered to go on the ground to save Michael Durant and they died and they posthumously received the Medal of Honor. Just, I mean, what kind of human being does that, man? Voluntarily putting himself in extreme harm's way, knowing that thousands of armed enemy personnel are heading their way, doing it with a smile and 
they lost their life. Uh, but the guy they died protecting is still alive today and still alive to, you know, hear something in me that like, after watching that movie, I read the book Black Hawk Down and started devouring book after book after book on li- military and life in combat. And that like almost overnight stopped doing drugs. And that was the trigger that changed my life and decided to do something more meaningful than the sort of selfish, worthless existence I was living at the time. That's, that's crazy because I was going to ask you about mentors. So really your mentor was, was that story in a way. And that's what's pivoted. That was that was the starting point. And then when you read all these books, you know, war is this is this experience of of revealing the duality of man at its most extreme. Like you see the horrors of war. We all know the horrors of the horrific things that happen in war. The, the, the humanity at its worst right, happens out there. But it's also humanity at its best. It's all it's in experiences of those extremes where you see people jumping on a grenade to save another person, you know, putting up a single single stand like one one man stand to to, to save your fellow soldiers so they could they could, you know, make the move they needed to make or in Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar volunteer to go on the ground and then die so another man could live because of your actions, you know, so. There was something that drew me to experiencing the the edges of humanity in that way. And I wanted to I wanted to 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 see what that would reveal, not just in myself, but to see humanity in that way, you know, to see to understand the greater a greater to get a greater depth into the human condition. Because before this, as I said, I lived a pretty good life and like, you know. Indian parents tend to be very overprotective. Mine weren't the as extreme as some people I know, but but like fairly like couldn't have asked for a better comfortable life, right? So it was in the Marines where I started to learn how to suffer, how to learn how to navigate adversity. And I mean, I didn't just survive boot camp, but I thrived in it. I graduated infantry school as an honor graduate of my platoon. And you know why I say about surviving boot camp because it took me a year and a half to get into the Marines. I have a blood disorder that two doctors told me would kill me in boot camp. I also have flat feet scoliosis. I'm like a genetic mess. So, <laughs> uh, so I had to sort of get a medical waiver. Like if it wasn't post 9-11, I would not have gotten the military. I know people who have been rejected because of flat feet. I had that plus a series of other things. But post 9-11, here's a young kid who wants to go Marine Corps infantry. You know, they found a way. But that like experience transformed me. And, you know, more than, you know, the, the, it also, it's also because in the military, you live for the good of the group, not for the good of the individual. Nobody gives a shit how happy you are that day or what your well being is like. What matters is your men and your mission. And there's something profoundly beautiful about living in such an environment where the good of the group matters more than your individual well being. That's, I mean, that level of sacrifice or something greater. I mean, I mean, at the most extreme, of course, is the experience of war. But even on the day to day, you know, it's like, okay, hey, the mission matters. Your men matter, especially if you're a non-commissioned officer, you're a charge of Marines. Then your men matter more than your well-being. So you stay up late or whatever it means, right? And that's beautiful to live that way. So Marines, I mean, it was transformational. It changed me. It's a huge part of who I am today, and I treasure that experience. Absolutely, well, it's, it's amazing when when people have that altruistic. Um, experience, especially if they're processing some trauma and they've come through the other side, the healing element of doing something bigger than yourself, as you said, giving back seems to be so healing for the individual as well. It's very therapeutic uh, for uh, for the individual. I mean, like you said, you know, I mean, they've done so many studies about it that I that like when you when you when you serve somebody else, when you even think about serving somebody else, it helps release oxytocin in the brain. And oxytocin helps us move. It's the quote unquote love hormone, and it it helps us move through fear. It doesn't eliminate fear, but it helps us move through it. Which is what like there's kind of this paradoxical again event in war that it releases these stress hormones. But when we when we when we see a brother or you know somebody in our brother in arms getting hurt. It releases that oxytocin and it gives us the strength to move through the wall of fire that we need to. Like I have a friend who ran into a burning Humvee to save a fellow Marine, you know, that kind of courage and, and 
and living at the Marines or military kind of institution. And it's not just military. I mean, it's like any institution where you're putting your life on the line for something greater for someone other than yourself. It teaches you so much about yourself in the process as well. Absolutely. Well, you talked about duality. It's funny. It's one of the questions that I always love to ask anyone who's been in the combat, you know, the deployed in combat. Um, we do get a very polarized view of war and I always preface this the same way. You know, you either get the kill them all, let God sort them out, or you get the, they're all baby killers. And the reality is in the middle are men and women, boys and girls that we sent to fight for our country. Regardless of politics, what I like to draw out is what these men and women actually saw as far as you know the 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 horrible things that were happening in the country whether it was afghanistan whether it was iraq um you know usually to to the afghani or iraqi people that then made you realize irrele- you know, politics is irrelevant these are some horrible people i'm obviously going to te- protect my men and women too this is really my mission yeah you know and great question like you said it's it's not either extreme you see some of those extremes we saw some of that sort of just uh, like I just want to kill somebody. It doesn't matter who. But most of us out there, I mean, again, separate from the politics of the war, on the ground, we wanted to help these people. I mean, these people, Iraqi people, have lived under horrific, oppressive regimes that have put them through hell for years and years and years and years. I met one guy in Iraq who had who had been a prisoner of war in Iran for eight years because of the Iran-Iraq war. I mean, prisoner of war in Iran. I can't even imagine what that man, what the hell that man must have been through, right? And you could see he was clearly sort of scarred from that experience there was it was very noticeable even on a sort of a initial meeting and so the the experience there you know it like for us we wanted to do good on the ground we saw more iraqi people getting hit than like in my battalion nobody got killed we had a, somebody in our uh, we in our in our company got hit with an ied thankfully nobody got killed ieds improvised explosive device but we we all came back alive and and you know that was a huge result of one just the 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 unit before us but we were working with the iraqi people like the insurgents were killing them more than they were killing us and it was heartbreaking we were trying to work with them to prevent that from happening i mean the first week we got to iraq the insurgents cut the cut the head off a local iraqi threw it on the streets as a warning to the iraqis that if you work with the americans this is what will happen it had the exact reverse effect they were getting tired of that shit i mean obviously as anybody would right and they wanted to work with us to help find them so it was a it was a beautiful experience seeing people from seemingly opposite worlds. I mean, we walk around the streets of Iraq, you stand out. You're this big Marine with huge armor, rifle in your hand, Kevlar. You're this obvious sort of war machine kind of person walking, you know, looking through the, walking through the streets. But you're seeing how these people, like, we're working with them. You know, we want to support them. And again, this is separate from all the politics. I know there's a lot involved in it about us going, I actually did my history thesis on the war. So I did a lot of research about it. And so I know intimately about the nature of the war from a big picture. So I'm just talking about the ground level. Like, it was beautiful to see that. It was beautiful to see. I mean, we had Iraqis coming up and telling me that I feel sorry Americans have to pay in blood for Iraqi freedom, you know? And they there was this two worlds coming together in service of something greater. And so you live for your men, for your mission, for this mission that on the ground, we're trying to do something noble that's greater than yourself. And I mean, what could be more beautiful than that, you know? Now, conversely, with speaking of duality, um, were there any moments of compassion and kindness that really struck, stuck out amongst this, you know, this combat zone? Um, I think it, uh, I'm trying to think of any specific that really stood out. There was, 
there was, I mean, this on a general basis, we had Iraqis coming up to us saying things like I was just telling you, you know, I feel sorry Americans have to pay in blood Iraqi freedom. We had one day where I remember our, we had, I forget what happened, but something happened in one of our bases. We either ran out of power or food. And I don't remember all the details of how it went down, but I remember the local Iraq, one of the local Iraqi sort of leaders in the community brought all this food for us in our base, you know, tons of food for us. And that was really cool. Like we would go every once in a while, we would go into their houses and we would meet and we'd eat their eat food with them. That Iraqi chai was delicious, you know. So I think just the sort of day to day of us working with them and trying to, you know, I I can imagine there might have been people who who did not receive us well, <laughs> just the locals. I mean, I can imagine and understand it. Like if there was a, a like a military force walking through our streets, I don't think anybody would like that, right? But for the most part, uh, they were. It seemed like they were very warm to us, and we we wanted to. Um, reciprocate that every one of us like nobody nobody there was wa- wanting to like in the challenge of that environment is that it's counterinsurgency warfare so you never know whether the person on that street there is the person who's just a normal person living their life or the person who wants to kill you you know so you have to always be on alert now mo- we don't want to kill an innocent human being but the threat of that is always there and unfortunately it did happen once you know so but i remember like one as an example of that you know where, where we what the insurance started doing because they knew out of respect we would never physically search a woman we would maybe physically like pat down a man but never do to do a woman so what the insurgents are doing we heard about this this what we heard about this uh this uh, through the intel you know the intel grapevine about this is what what thing that they started doing was they would dress up like women in the burqas and they would wear suicide vests under that so we would every time we saw women we'd often look at their feet to see if they have sort of manly looking feet you know and and that's like the hard part about the war is you just never know whether that person is the one who wants to kill you or if they're just a normal person living your life and you have to make tough calls that if you make a wrong call you're you could get killed and more importantly your men could get killed and that's a hard thing to which i think that's like one thing that really pisses me off about when people don't get that back home like there was an incident when when these marines had shot i think this was this italian person that was visiting iraq like some diplomat something like that happened and it got this person got shot on a post and everybody flipped shit, like, you know, Marine shooting. And it's like, dude, I'm not saying there wasn't atrocities, but you have no fucking clue what it's like to be on a post when every single car coming up to you, every single person coming up to you is the, is, is a person that could kill you and your men. And that's like the, to be on edge at that level constantly. It not a lot of people can fathom that. So it's hard to place. You have no right to place a judgment on somebody in that position, you know, when, when, when things like that happen. And so we we did a we did a damn good job I think of alleviating the situation. I remember once I because I made a very conscious effort to learn Arabic. And one time there was this incident that happened where these Iraqis started swarming our seven ton. And so now we got a crowd of Iraqis swarming a seven ton. People kind of on edge, right? So a couple of Marines are kind of getting their rifles at the ready, like ready to go. And I'm like, dude, let's like hold up. Like we gotta we got we get we can de-escalate this without like shit hitting the fan and something going wrong on all sides, innocent people getting killed. And so I managed to walk down from the seven ton and speak enough Arabic to sort of defuse the situation and everybody walked on their way. But that's, I mean, it's a situation that in the end, nothing happened. So it seems like nothing, but it's a situation. I mean, you know, man, like these are, these are kind of situations where one split second can go the difference between a completely normal, nothing situation to holy shit, everything went to hell and people got killed, you know? And it's our job constantly to try to make sure it goes the other way. Yeah. Well, I think it's an important perspective to hear over and over and over again because you know you think of world war ii you know it was really the last conflict that came to the the british soil 
um, you know, it was pretty easy. I'm sure there were exceptions, but it's pretty easy to see who were the Germans, who were yeah. the Brits, you know, who were the Americans. Yeah. But then now you go to Afghanistan and Iraq, and, and as you said, who are the civilians? And, and not only is it a different dress, you've got a completely different culture, a different language. Yeah. So there's so many barriers, and you're sending predominantly 18, 19 year old, you know, Kids. men and women, yeah, <laughs> who haven't got yeah. a huge amount of world experience. So of course there are going to be mistakes and, you know, collateral damage. It doesn't make it any less heartbreaking. But, you know, I think that's why it's so important for our, I'll use the quotation marks, leaders <laughs> to, to you know, make sure that when we send our people out there, that it's only when it's completely, you know, unavoidable. Absolutely. I mean, in today's environment, I think war is the ultimate enemy. And I'm not I'm not saying violence never has a place. I believe it does. But uh, like World War Two is an example where I believe it was warranted. And uh, and, you know, but but in today's environment, it's. We got to do the best we can to 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 resolve to de-escalate. I mean, at a macro level, not just the micro level that I'm talking about, because shit, man, a lot of people, a lot of people get killed on both on all sides, on on every side, and uh, that's always heartbreaking. Absolutely. Well, just a quick tangent before we move forward. You mentioned about doing your thesis on on that conflict, so. If you wouldn't mind, educate us on the kind of history. I know, I know it goes way, way back, but you know, what are kind of some of the identifiable roots of Al Qaeda, the Taliban being able to thrive in the first place? You're going to have to forgive my uh, ignorance on this one. I, I remember writing my history thesis on the Iraq war, but I do not have the greatest memories. So I don't remember too much about it. I wrote my history thesis more on the war, like about us going in. Should we have gone in? So I read, like, I remember one book standing out was Fiasco in-depth powerful book about the nature of the war so it, it it wasn't so much about like taliban and al-qaeda at a it was more about the war america's role in it what we could i mean i remember my conclusion being okay yes we should not have gone in that was fairly evident by the end of it but having gone in i believe we could have done some good for the people there and some good could have come from it for america and for hum for like iraq for on a moral perspective you know and that was ultimately what i concluded now history could prove me wrong obviously as as we you know as we continue down the path but i i think that like that's that's so i don't i guess to answer your question though i don't know too much about the history to speak about it in intelligently enough about sort of al-qaeda and taliban but just about the the war and even then i barely remember what i do remember is that general mattis was a game changer like we we fucked up big time when the war started like the civilian leaders were like straight up assholes a lot of people got killed on our side and on all sides because of what they did people like the the donald rumsfelds and dick cheney they didn't listen to our military leaders but general mattis which is why i absolutely love general mattis he i, I believe and not to believe i can defend this he his his decisions single-handedly made an impact in the fact that me and my single single every single man in my battalion came back home because he was the one who started implementing counterinsurgency doctrine he was the one who changed what was once the most hostile province in iraq the al-anbar province into what became one of the safest i was in, deployed to the al-anbar province because of general mattis's rules and and, and how he started implementing counterinsurgency doctrine making officers read books about counterinsurgency and i mean i was like devouring books about counterinsurgency before going out there because and hence hence while i was leading reading books about iraq as well so that's one thing that I will never forget because his policy, his role saved countless number of lives. Like when we went to the, we went, we were deployed to Haditha. And if you Google Haditha to this day, I wouldn't be surprised if you'd see the first thing you'd see is Haditha massacre where some Marines had shot a bunch of civilians out there. So we went there after that happened. So inevitably I thought, fuck, they're going to, 
it hate us, right? They're going to hate us, and it's going to be a very hostile environment. Everybody, like including civilians, they're going to want nothing to do with us. But through General Mattis's doctrines, to his principles, and what he did, he was able to shift the tide of the war. And the unit before us did a fantastic job implementing the principles he laid out, so that by the time we got there, the people actually wanted to work with us. As I was saying, you know, so that's one thing that like I can never forget is the the fuck ups we did do as a country that got a lot of Americans and a lot of Iraqis killed and the the awesome people who came in there and did a better job like the general Madises of the world. Yeah, well that's good to hear. I've I've always admired him myself and uh, uh he's awesome. Yeah. So I love him. <laughs> I think he'd be great to try and get on here one day, but I think that's a that's a shoot, shooting for <laughs> the stars kind of guess. <laughs> <laughs> Can happen. Yeah. <laughs> um well just quickly before we we get onto your transition cuz I know that's always a, a pivotal point in people's lives too. Um you had an interesting role within the Marines. So so tell me about that because I mean the, we're only a couple of years into the conflict by that point. It must have been, you know, pretty terrifying what you were doing. So, yeah, one of my jobs when we were deployed to Iraq was anytime our con- vehicle convoy hit a danger zone, me and one of the Marines, uh, my job was to walk in front of the vehicle convoys to clear the area, to look for bombs before they could be used to kill me and my fellow Marines and, you know, hurt the convoy. So, as, yeah, as you said, it was a somewhat dangerous job because if somebody's going to get blown up first there, it's me or that other guy, right? As we're walking across a bridge or any time a danger zone, we were sort of the bomb detectors, <laughs> if you will, to clear the danger zone before we would then wave the convoys and come through. Now, we did a fantastic job finding the IEDs before they could be used to kill us. And obviously, I made it out. I made it out. But it was, you know, to be very frank, my, I didn't go into war with the healthiest mentality. So I didn't, I wasn't too scared. One, because by this point, I had gone heavily into outdoor sports as well. So before, for when I first joined the Marines to deploy to Iraq, it was about two and a half years. And I got big into outdoor sports because Marines taught me about engaging fear, right? Pushing myself into places of suffering and, 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 and challenging myself. So while until I got deployed, outdoor sports became my vehicle to, to do that, like everything, mountain climbing, skydiving, cave diving, rock climbing, like you name it. I used to go rock climbing without rope. So when I got when I went to Iraq, I had a very high tolerance of risk. I was I worked with fear in some very intense settings, like free free soloing up rock walls with no rope. So when I got there, I was I thrived in that environment. And not to mention, I also went out there not expecting to come back alive in many ways, because to, to, to kind of preface that why what happened was but when i first joined the unit i met this guy corporal jacob neal me and him got very very close became like brothers same kind of marine and we were the only two in our unit except the, like most of the unit had just come back from iraq so the, out of us new guys we were the only two volunteering to go to iraq or afghanistan or any like whatever wherever send us somewhere we wanted to go to war together twice the marines told us we were going last minute they canceled it and you know whenever we would train we would always compete like friendly competition and I would maybe beat him by like one point on the rifle range or a few seconds on the um, on a run. And so we'd always have these kind of friendly competitions. And the, the reason I bring that up, I'll, I'll explain here in a second, is so when when we, you know, we were volunteering to go together and never got the chance. Now, one summer I came to India to visit my family because summers I would come to, vi- to visit. And that summer he ended up finally finding a unit to go with. And he, he ended up getting deployed. And because he was a good Marine, he got promoted to corporal. And as a result, he was in a seat that got hit with an IED and he was killed. That tore me up. It tore me up that I should not have gone on vacation to India. I My commitment was to stay with him. It was never happening. So in my mind, I was like, all right, fuck it. I'm just going to go. But that, like, I should have been there with him. And 
because in my mind, like I would beat him, not that I was any better than him. He was an outstanding Marine, far better than I was, but because I would, uh, because I would beat him by a few seconds on the range or, or on the run or the rifle range, I felt in my mind that I should have gone out there. I should have gotten that promotion and I should have been in his seat and I had no right to not be there. It like, I skipped out of my duty and my honor and my commitment to him. And that tore me up. So when I did finally get my opportunity to go in 2007, which is the same year he was killed, I went out there being like in very naively, admittedly, because you can't control what happens in war. But in my mind, it was like if somebody has to die, I'd rather it be me than somebody else. And again, so naive perspective, but that's just how it was at the time, you know. Uh, and and so I went out there like I gave away most of my stuff before I left. And I didn't I said if I said like I'd rather I'd rather it be me than somebody else. So fuck it. If I have to go, I got to go. Well, it's interesting to say that my interview just two hours ago was with a guy called John, John Hancock, who was uh, also a Marine, and they were one of the early uh, Marines that were in Ramadi, so the first battle of Ramadi. And uh, he talked about getting to the point where he accepted he was already going to die. And that gave him actually, you know, not so much more courage, but less hesitation. Like he was able to be almost in that flow state because he kind of shed that that idea and there, and there wasn't that kind of hesitation. With that mindset, what did you observe in yourself? That's a fantastic question. I think, you know, with that, I, I was not nearly as self-aware back then as I am today. So I don't think I had too much awareness as to what you know, like looking at it now, though, from the lens now, I actually this is I don't know, John, so I'm not speaking about him. I'm looking only speak for myself. I don't think it was a healthy like today. I'm scared of dying. I'm terrified of death. And I do a lot of things that could kill me today different ways. But I do. I still do a lot of things that kill me. And I'm grateful that I am scared of death. So I think that it put me perhaps in 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 situations like like as an example so one one i remember once we were in iraq we got the we got these locals told us that there were a bunch of insurgents in this cave so we were running over to the cave and like ready to kind of like shit insurgents are there this is going to go down and there was me and a lance corporal who, who were kind of moving first and he we we both hard charging marines wanted to be first in the cave but being first is the most dangerous job because if you're the first in there in any situation you're the most likely to get shot <laughs> you know so he had he was junior to me so he had to listen to me so i had i made him i was like go behind me because again in my mind i was like if somebody gets shot i'd fucking much rather it be me than him than this kid you know so I, i'm not like i don't know healthy or not i think it was the right call to do that and i would still do that even with the fear of death but i think that a fear of death when you have a when you value fear in a healthy, like when you respect fear, when you when you have a positive relationship to fear, the fear of death can be one of the most empowering drivers there is. And so in Iraq, it worked for me. I was, you know, I kind of thrived out there. I, I, I struggled. I mean, you know, it was war. You have your low moments and stuff like that. And the biggest thing for me was I was pissed off that it wasn't, it wasn't as, like we, we got kind of towards the tail end of the war. So we weren't having shit go down all the time. I mean, we'd have like pop shots here and there, you know, a rocket hit uh, uh, just outside our base. So we had things happening. But in my mind, I wanted to be right in the shit constantly, you know, and I was pissed off that I wasn't. So I was I mean, I remember once in my journal, I was rereading my journal. This actually uh, I, didn't, I totally forgot about this till right now. I was reading my journal just a few months ago. And I remember reading my journal and I, I myself reading it from my lens today was like, holy shit, what the fuck was I thinking at the time? I remember reading and it said, man, I just wish your IED just would hit our weapon today or hit our vehicle today. And it's and I remember like I don't remember exactly what I said, but I did. It's not that I wanted anybody else to get killed. I wanted. Something to like to happen that would jar me in, in a way that 
well, that's not that's not healthy any by any fucking man. And like again, it's not that I would it remotely wanted anybody else to get killed, but I remember writing that in my journal. I can't remember what else I wrote, but I just remember reading it and be like, holy shit, man, that's a fucked up thing to be wishing when you're out there doing this every single day, you know? So yeah, I don't know if it was it worked. It got me out, and I mean I I, I wouldn't approach life or death in that way anymore. But I guess for that time in my life, it needed to be what it needed to be. You know, what things work until they don't. Yeah. Well, it's it's so interesting to watch because, I mean, as a firefighter, you know, I I observe, you know, that flow state, you know, that, I mean, yeah. when you're actually in, in the moment. And obviously, there has to be at that moment an absence of fear or a control of fear, you know, a mastery of fear in a way to be able to do your job. If you're thinking about all the things that could kill you, you'd never yeah. even go into the building. However, you know, and I think that kind of factors into maybe where John saw himself at that moment. He's another person who absolutely has a very, very powerful PTSD struggle as well. But then you hear the, the carelessness in fire, police, military, and that, I think, then becomes a, a red flag of mental yeah. ill health because you see that as people start getting into the PTSD realm there's a there's a lack of care of their own life that isn't that flow state anymore. It's more a kind of, you know, self-destruction element. Yeah, you know, and I mean, like they sometimes say, if somebody tells you they're not scared in war, they're either lying or they're insane. Because in the midst, like, you want fear, but then you lose fear. That's kind of what I call the fear of honest state, where it's almost like the ana- good analogy for anybody looks like it's it's like if you're skydiving before you jump out the plane, there is fear, or at least for there was for me and there often is right. Once you jump, there no longer is fear. Then you're in kind of that rush. Then you're in the bliss and you're in flow. You're in fear of Vana. So in some sense, like not having it, you could like I don't remember too many moments in Iraq where I was genuinely scared for my life and not because I was braver. I was anything like that. Like there were other people in our very same squad who would like I remember when we did debriefs who felt a genuine fear for their life, but I did not because one, I had this very high tolerance of risk buildup from all the crazy things I was doing in outdoor sports. And two, because I almost did not fear death, you know? So it did allow you to sort of be there fully and like whatever job that came my way. Like if we were, somebody said, go in the first in the house, I was like, fuck yeah, I'll go first. You know, like, let's, let's like whatever, whatever, whatever I have to do. Um, and yeah, it allows you to step into to to in that sense, like to your to your point and to John's point about flow. But I think that a healthy like a a healthy fear for whatever the pursuit is that demands your fear will help you approach it in a way that, like in my case today, in mountaineering or polar exploration, I I want to be scared of these environments because they demand your fear. Like if you if you go out there with no respect for these for the power of these environments, and like I said, I saw this on the storms in Denali. They will fucking kill you, you know. And it's important. Like fear breeds respect. Fear breeds like I like one of my mantras is fear propels pre- fear propels preparation. Like when you it propels you to prepare because with fear you're now training harder. You know this thing you do. Whether I mean we spent five months doing the work up to war because. Shit, like we're going into a war zone. You better be scared that you could die. So you train for it, you know? And there, it's like this fine line that we all play around with. There's no right or wrong, I don't think, like when you're, when how you navigate it. But I think that now, like looking at the dangerous things I do, which are obviously different from war, but in some ways they have their similarities to them. Like I, I, if I find myself not being afraid, I will consciously activate fear about these environments because. Like some of the things that I'm planning are audacious. No human beings have ever done them before. They could very easily kill me. And if I start getting too, like fear kills complacency too, right? If I get too complacent, now that could kill me. So with fear, it, it makes me say, okay, shit, I'm doing this thing. I better train for it. I better prep for it. I better do go step onto this new battlefield as ready as possible to engage the fight that will that will come my way. 
you know? So, and I also over time, I've now learned to build a very positive, like that's my whole work is fear of honor is basically falling in love with fear and using it as an access point to something beautiful. Yeah. Well, that's so, so great to hear because I agree a hundred percent. And I think, um, you know, to get into that flow state and I had a, um, a movement coach who was a pro baseball player before talking about this. I think you know, the factors that you need is obviously stress, which you're going to have in a combat zone. I'm going to have in a fire. Um, there's training, which is huge. Like you can't get in a flow state if you haven't done those, you know, 10,000 you know, times. Um, and then there's, you know, the calm mind and, and, you know, understanding that, as, as you just said, and you put it perfectly, I don't want the fear when I'm fighting the fire. I want the fear to propel me onto the fire ground to train, into the gym to train, into the uncomfortable, you know, um, conference scenarios and, you know, the, where it's, where it's very high stress training. I want all that. That's where it scares me. I'm scared to look like an idiot. I'm scared to be tired. I'm scared to be trapped in a dark space. But then when it comes to actually someone's life being in the balance i hope that the sum of all the fear driven training that i've done will put me in a not a fearless but a flow state to perform at the highest level when there's a life on the line absolutely yeah i couldn't agree with you more so you can step into that arena now because it's i mean stress inoculation right you've put yourself like even denali for example we had these insane storms hit us and i did not like i was smiling in these storms but not because again i'm any braver but because i had trained i remember up being up in vermont and one day i was out running and i was doing these cold river dips and this snarly storm hit i mean 20 feet in front of me, this tree crashed down. Like I'd been running a little faster. We would not be having this conversation, this monster tree crashed, you know? And then I was like, in my mind, one part of me was like, it was a little nervous because the wind's hitting, you know, water splashing off the, off, the, off the waves crashing. And I was like, should I do my cold river dip that I had planned? And I always knew I was going to do it, but you know, you can sometimes have that inner conflict and you go in. And I remember just like, like talking to myself saying, be the eye of the storm, you know, let the storm rage around you, but you can be still in the face of that. And that just comes with training. It's not something like you put yourself in those storms enough, you will learn to be able to, and like now I'm going to Antarctica in November. After going through those Denali storms, it's preparing me for the Antarctica storms I'll experience this November. And they're going to be brutal. Those Antarctic storms are absolutely horrific. And I want to be at the place, and I believe I will be at the place where I can just be completely still within and like smile no matter how, because those storms are very panic inducing if you haven't trained in them. They can easily warrant panic because of how intense they are you know and so you train yourself so you can stay still and smile in the face of them and this is of course not just a literal storm life storms right whatever they may be yeah no it's such a powerful perspective and i agree 100 percent. and there's so many parallels to, to what we do so you you know you're you're in the marines you're you're looking for ieds you're you know with your cohesive group Tell me, you know, when you decide you want to transition out and then tell me about that transition experience because in, in military and in fire and police, it seems like some people do well. They, they have a tribe to, to, to kind of transition into or, or a profession or, or an altruistic element. But a lot of people, I think, identify as a Marine, as a cop, as a firefighter. And if they don't have that, they find themselves standing alone in an apartment, really, really, you know, going through a maelstrom in their mind. Yeah. You know, when I, so when I came back, I, I came back to finish up my senior year of college and, uh, that's when I wrote that history thesis. And at that point I had a unique perspective of not just researching, but actually having experienced it. Right now coming back to college was a hard adjustment and I don't like, I, you can't blame a person for doing the best, but they what they can at their level of self-awareness. Again, I wasn't as self-aware as I was to, as I am today. So I was very judgmental of college students who whined about a lot of stupid shit. And, uh, and I couldn't, I struggled with 
being in that environment. I wanted to go back to war. I could, I also felt like I hadn't done enough in war. I hadn't suffered enough. I mean, I came back, I didn't get shot, right? I didn't lose any limbs. Why did I get to come back when my buddy didn't? I felt like I hadn't suffered enough to warrant my peace. I hadn't gone through enough war to deserve peace. And so I wanted to go back. I kept volunteering to go back, going to Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, it's not as easy to volunteer as you would think because moving paperwork and just this all kinds of stuff. So it didn't happen. So what happened was after finishing my college, I had one year left in my Marine Reserves. I was in the Marine Reserves at the time to, on my contract. So one plan was to go be like a mountain bum in the Himalayas because I wanted to experience a hostile environment that could kill you again. So I wanted to go back somewhere like that. I couldn't go off because I still had a year left in my contract. So I decided to go to master's to get my master's in journalism because I thought I'd go back to war as a combat journalist. So I went to uh, got my master's in journalism. And at that point, I my plan was to now become a combat journalist. But I met my uh, then uh, wife at the time. And so that plan changed. And after meeting her is when I thought, you know, wars were dying down. And so in my mind, peacetime military, there was no point. So that's when I kind of decided to get out. And I, you know, I, when I first uh, finished my master's, I had no clue what I wanted to now do with my life, right? Like you said, struggling with identity, no real tribe. And so I was like, what the hell do I do? I just got married. I needed to make sure to kind of be responsible husband as well. So I got a corporate job, uh, which I hated, <laughs> but I, the same day I signed up for the corporate job, I also signed up to do a one month polar expedition in Greenland where I would drag 190 pound sled for 350 miles, minus 40 degrees, brutal storm, just this intense expedition. And so I quit my job. So I signed up for that expedition the same day I signed up for the job. So I knew exactly what day I would quit. And this is all kind of building up to my transition because now I had a corporate job that provided me a structure to kind of keep the demons at bay because I had to show up to the job, right? I had to do all these things. And I was drinking on weekends, but not really a problem, you know, not really that big a problem at the time. Although looking back, it was without a doubt getting to that point. Then I did Greenland. And when I came back from Greenland, I was building all my business. So now I don't have an external structure of a corporate job provided for me. I don't have the structure of an intense environment like Greenland. When you're on Greenland, you the, the environment demands your constant presence or it will kill you, you know? And I love that. Like, uh, to be honest with you, looking back, I went to Greenland just to run away from my demons. I was doing everything to avoid being still with myself. So now when all these structures were taken from me, the, 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 when all of that was gone, that's when the demons started to rise to the surface. And so the drinking from a Friday went to Friday, Saturday, then three days then four days. And soon, I mean, I'm talking like, man, drinking like a bottle a day. I would be downing a bot 750 milliliter bottle of vodka a day. I remember points in my life that I'd be sit, standing over the toilet, throwing up with the bottle on the shelf above the toilet. And as soon as I'm done throwing up, I pick up the bottle, just keep drinking, like downing it as hard as you can. And one morning after like five days of this binge drinking session, I woke up because I would go through these. Then I would sober up because this would obviously fuck your mind and body up in a pretty bad way. And be like, OK, I got to change. And inevitably I'd fall down the spiral again. And so one morning I was like, this pattern's never going to end. What's the point of going on? And I was like seconds away from picking up a knife to slip my wrist. And that was rock bottom. That was when the thing started to change. It wasn't a smooth climb out. It was a very rough, hard you know, brutal clawing my way out of the abyss. But that was the moment that began that journey up. And everything before that was this slow descent until that moment uh, that led to that. Now, with with the, the climb out, because obviously, you know, the alcohol especially is so damn, you know, controlling, addicting. What were some of the tools that you used to to make that upswing? So, you know, at the time before, before this, when that happened, I had been seeing a VA therapist and great people, awesome people. They just wanted nothing to do to nothing but to help. But 
I realized in time that they were operating from a very bad playbook. Like I had been diagnosed with PTSD. And, and so something wasn't working. Like I was just going deeper. So once this happened, I started delving into neuroscience, into psychology, into spirituality, reading books, reading books, devouring books, you know. And what helped was at the, at the starting point was a, disident, a disidentification from these labels and from all these factors that are beyond our control. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a more practical way. So, so for example, you know, when I was diagnosed with PTSD, they said things like, survival survivor's guilt which i felt or i struggled with loud noises so it was very jumpy hypervisual and loud noises i struggled with being in crowds all of these things were that they said were symptoms of ptsd now what i started to learn was that look this is not a disorder that's a very normal human response to war when you spend seven months in war loud noises equals death inevitably your brain is going to be more hyper hypervigilant than the other person because it's learned to associate loud noises with death. And we don't control most of what happens in our brain. It's happening in the subconscious. It's a response to external factors beyond our control. So when I started learning all these things, I was starting to disidentify the labels attached to these things like, you know, guilt was a quote unquote bad emotion. Everybody said, don't feel guilty, family, friends, the therapist. And look, rationally, I get it, man. I could have gone to war with my buddy and he could have still died. I could have still come back alive, you know, but emotionally it didn't change the fact that I felt guilt. And everybody was saying, here's how to like, you shouldn't feel it. And it wasn't going away. And instead I said, look, guilt is not inherently the problem. It's my relationship to it. The loud noises, the fact that I'm jumpy, that's not the problem. It's my relationship to it. Like the stress, I had post-traumatic stress, but by attaching the word disorder to it, that became a part of my identity. That became a self, a self-fulfilling prophecy in this downward spiral. So the very start of it was, and this is far easier said than done. I get it, but it had to be constantly practiced to learn to sort of say, to disassociate myself from the identity of these, to saying, look, this is not who I am. This is not like my brain goes through a pattern, but I am not my brain and my brain is not me. So even with the guilt, for example, what I started doing was I put a picture of my friend up on my wall and it said, it was, it was a picture of me and him from the Marine Corps ball. And it said, this should have been you earn this life. Now that's an intense thing to look at every single morning, but it fueled me. Now my guilt became my ally. It said, it said my guilt became a weapon to stop wasting this life with bottles and bottles of vodka and start using it for something greater. I mean, I, I found out, I didn't know this till at the time, but I found out 10 years later after the war that my vehicle drove over an active IED when I was in Iraq. My staff sergeant told us he was in the same vehicle and for some reason it didn't explode. Now, when you look at all these things, I didn't get shot. I didn't get blown up. Now, I don't know what the fuck I did to, des to deserve all of this when there's other people who have died out there. But what I do know is that I can't change the fact that I am alive now, and it's on me to earn this life. It's on me to do something useful with it. So all these things, I stopped demonizing them. I started to – so like, so to answer your question, like to, to really summarize, the starting point, you have to just do whatever it takes to get out of the pain and disidentify from the struggle so you can start saying this is not me. Like I am not this thing. But the, what's so, so important to overcome addiction, and I've, so this is like I've lost friends to it, and I see this, is you have to channel it to a worthy struggle. That's what I call it, your worthy struggle to some path, to something, some meaningful path that's greater. I mean, we touched on this, right? To service, to something greater than yourself. It, you, like if you, if you just get out of it and you leave that void, the void will be filled with that darkness and with your demons. Now, this doesn't mean the demons don't go away, but you learn to work with them. You learn to use your darkness as an access point to the light. So I had to channel everything I had gone through into my now worthy struggle, into writing this book, Fear of Honor, into helping other people with this work, Fear of Honor, obviously I'm not the only person who suffered. Everybody suffers in some way. And especially so many of my veteran brothers had seen, you know, I lost two veteran buddies to suicide, you know, one, one shot himself in the head a few months after the war. And, and all of these things, because 
I believed I was seeing a very flawed way to operate that how people are handling things like post-traumatic stress, things like the anxiety, you know, wrecking and what the, everything that, that helped me shift it was to stop demonizing these things like fear, stress, anxiety, guilt, suffering. These are not negative. These are not bad. Post-traumatic stress is not bad. These are part of the human experience by, by labeling it as bad. That creates the downward spiral that help that sends us into the deeper and deeper into the pit. When we start building a positive relationship to fear, to guilt, to suffering, to anxiety, to post-traumatic stress, now we can make it work for us. And that's the core of who I am and what I do today and everything with my brand, with, with me as a, like spiritually is for myself and others, continuing to help people develop a positive relationship to suffering of any kind, fear, stress, anxiety, because it is not inherently bad. It is not the enemy. And we hear that all the time, right? The top guys in the quote unquote personal development self-help world will say, will demonize anxiety. I've seen this when the top guys, like anxiety is bad, sadness, they'll put this demonization of depression, like this say, be fearless. Don't, you know, don't be scared. And that's absolute garbage. Like these are all part of the ebbs and flows of the human experience. And everything, everything has its place. Without pain, we cannot know pleasure. Without darkness, we cannot know light. So we need to know the suck. We cannot, we cannot truly find feel happiness without knowing sadness. And that's the whole misconception with happiness as well, that happiness is not the elimination of sadness. Happiness is the ability to find the gift in sadness. And so everything I was learning was this like combating these very flawed method methodologies and perspectives that I was seeing in the world and now helping myself re reframe it at first just to get out of the pit. And again, it wasn't a smooth climb. Like I, I drank again after that part where I was, you know, when I was on the verge of suicide, I drank again. I eventually then sobered up. And after that, I broke my sobriety, went through a divorce. So I've gone through my, like, I've fallen back into the pit multiple times after that happened. But like, it, but everything I was learning gave me new weapons to Stay, stay in the fight every time I fell back in, you know, every, if I would take 10 steps down, so be it. I'm going to, I'm going to rise the fuck back up and figure out what that new, what that, what, what happened that led me to the pit this last time. That was eventually their inspiration to going to the darkness retreat as well, you know? So that's, sorry, I know I've been talking for a little while, but that was kind of a, a that's what started the, the journey out of the, out of the darkness and to get to, thankfully now we're in a feeling a very good spot spiritually in, in every way. Yeah, well, it's such a powerful perspective, and again, thank you. And especially, you know, being being honest enough to say, you know, that that you fell back into to the alcohol a few times because what I've seen again through my lens and all these amazing people have had to to you know come on here is we we put band aids on the real issues, and therefore we keep losing people. And the, the driving force behind this project, behind the book that I wrote, was most deaths are preventable. Like if you're in Thailand, you know, and the, the ocean suddenly regresses and you haven't been educated what that means and a tsunami kills you, that's not preventable. That's just a tragedy of mother nature, but that's an absolute minute amount of how many we lose. But you die of heart disease because you're obese. You die of an overdose. All these things, they are preventable. And I think, you know, when you say about justifying the life, I mean, you know, we, 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 we should be learning from those who have passed and, and improving the world. And I think, you know, the, the, some of the real startling um, areas that I see is like, for example, addiction and, and suicide ideation. When you deconstruct someone's life, there's some really horrible shit in a lot of people's past. And it takes, you know, you, you, if you medicate that, then you're basically signing a death warrant. They need to lean into that. They need to address that. And they will grow more resilient. I know some people don't like that words, but they will grow from that experience. But if it's suppressed and medicated and ignored and stigmatized, they're, they're one way or another, they're, they're going to be less healthy or even die. Absolutely. Carl Jung puts it beautifully. He says, 
until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. And to echo off that, he also says, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. And to your point, like we do everything we can to avoid going into those dark spaces within our soul, to avoid confronting our demons, because that shit is fucking hard. There's no two ways about it. There's nothing easy about that ride, about that journey to go come face to face with your demons. But it's only by acknowledging your demons, by actually embracing your demons, that you can use them as a vehicle to your divinity. You know, I always like to say that the greater your demons, the greater the divinity required to rise above them. So you have to go go to war with yourself. You have to go into those spaces to to know what darkness lies within so you can bring it to the surface. Because otherwise it's controlling you whether you like it or not. But once you bring it to the surface, you can do something about it. You can channel it. And then you can, and look, there are some things in life we go through that I don't believe, and my take on it is, you know, some people will say, get, oh, just get over it. I think there are some things that you will never get over. And, and that's okay. It doesn't mean you live your whole life consumed by misery and pain and darkness like my like i don't think i'll ever get over it just two you know a few weeks ago i was chatting with a friend and he was he was writing this article about me and we were talking about neil and i pulled up a youtube video about neil and i broke down crying watching it as i was showing it to him because he wanted to see who he was and that stuff will stay with you some of this stuff will stay with you but you learn to use it and you learn to call upon it when it matters like i'll give you a very concrete example of that you know i a couple of years ago, I did this 167-mile run across Liberia. It was about a marathon a day for a week. And like the fourth day in, about 17 miles in for that day, my, sh- my, my shin started aching. Just this horrible pain hit my shin. So I stopped. I tried to massage it, tried to rub it. It wasn't going away. So I started limping and walking for about another mile and a half. And I was like battling not just the physical pain, but the psychological pain of knowing that I had a lot of miles left to go. How am I going to do it? And then something in me started saying, let's jog. And, I, and then I start jogging now, and I go into an all-out sprint, like all-out sprint. And the whole time I'm telling myself things like, it should have been you that died in the war. Suck it the fuck up. People are suffering all around you because I was in Liberia. The country's gone through like hell, Ebola, civil war, poverty. And, you know, people are suffering all around you. If you quit now, you deserve a coward's death. You should have died instead of Neil. Earn this fucking life. Like saying these really dark things to myself. But though that five miles I ran that day was the fastest five miles I ran the entire trip. Now, I don't always talk to myself that way, but because I had confronted my demons and brought them to my surface, I can access them. I can use them. I can use anything, the light or the darkness, as a weapon to propel me on my mission. But you have to first bring it to the surface, and that is a hard, hard journey to go through. I'm not I, And nothing I or anybody else can say is going to take that away. You cannot – read your book, read a book your way out of it. You cannot go to a seminar where everybody's like cheering for you and rah, rah, feel good. All the feel good stuff. I'm not saying it doesn't have a place, but if you haven't gone through the pain, then you haven't gone far enough into your demons. Absolutely. Well, also I think an, an area that I've, I can't remember who it was now. One of the guests said recently, but it's so true. I think a lot of us that have been in fire, police, military, almost have this misconception that you're trying to get back to who you were. And how you're not going to be able to go back to who you were. You're not that person anymore. The 18 year old kid that never saw combat, never saw in a horrific, you know, fatality in a car or never watched their fellow officer get shot that you're not the same person. So I think that's it too. Like you said, embracing the darkness and the light, but forging them, owning them so that, you know, you're in control of them and not the other way around. But I mean, you know, you know, and I know if you look into a man or woman's eyes who's seen things that no one should see that stays with you forever you can tell the dude that was in accounting his whole career and that the the guy that was in fallujah yeah it will stay with you and it's it's important to like not let that because i mean you see me you've seen it i've seen it you know people who let it break them and it's not even it's not 
a judgment around it because I can't speak to anybody. It's heartbreaking when I see that. But that's what I want to do now is help people. How do we turn that into something meaningful? But yeah, you, I don't think you ever get over it. And and it shouldn't. you shouldn't go back to who you were. The idea is that we're constantly growing. Adversity can make us stronger. There is such a thing as post-traumatic growth. We don't place enough emphasis on it. And that is the problem. Like there was a great researcher, Dr. Martin Seligman. He went and did the study in, in West Point where he asked all the cadets, how many of you have heard of post-traumatic stress disorder? And something like 95% of people raised their hand. Then he asked them, how many of you have heard of post-traumatic growth? And it was less than 5%. And the whole point that he was making, which is 100% true, it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy. We live in a world that says trauma equals disorder. It does not have to, but because we believe it, it then becomes so. You know, like today, I mean, when people, if they, somebody hears I'm a veteran, there's often this sort of like, Oh, poor you, like, especially America. And I get it. It's coming from a place of love. I'm not like taken away from that. I respect where it's coming, but it's almost like, oh, poor you. You're probably, you know, fucked up in the head. You're, there's something wrong with you, you know? And that's, it doesn't have to be the case. Like these, these experiences of darkness and pain can be the greatest vehicles to tapping into something that you cannot tap into unless you've gone there because the deeper you go into the darkness, the greater you will know the light. That's why it's so, I mean, I've worked with these young girls who have gone through like sex trafficking and just human evil at its absolute fucking worst. Like they've gone through hell and what these girls are capable of now, like who, not that anybody would ever wish that on them or anybody. It is absolutely horrific what they've experienced, but because they've gone into such darkness, they are capable of so much more. They know something about the human condition, something about the human spirit that no one else can know. And this, look at this. I know that I'm not saying we should go into these fucking fucked up, these, these kind of scenarios. I'm not saying like go experience trauma because of that. That's why now I think there's positive ways to seek out suffering, which is what I do through my outdoor sports. And I still like experience darkness in its own way through that. But to the point of somebody who's already gone through it, you, like you can't change it now. You've already gone through it. That can be your greatest weapon, like your greatest tool, because you know something about the human spirit and you've transcended that. Like the fact that you could transcend that, the fact that you could transcend the the, the depths of these horrors of human evil that you've seen, you have revealed something about the God within, the inner Buddhahood, call it whatever you want, the awakened one that we all have, the awakenings that we have within us that somebody who's never gone that far into hell can tap into. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned sex trafficking. I had a... A Hungarian woman, uh, Tamir Naj, who was trafficked to Canada. And, um, you know, now she's, she's an advocate for, you know, sex trafficking victims. So she not only kind of got herself out of that situation, but, you know, was then able to process that and be the light. And I had a, another, another group I know you work with is Boy Soldiers. I had Ishmael Bey, who's from Sierra Leone, um, was, yeah, yeah. So yeah. beautiful. You know, his story, you know, his parents were murdered. He was forced to be a boy soldier. Now he works for UNICEF as an ambassador rescuing boy soldiers. So, when you see some of these extremes, and I know you should never compare trauma, but it is so powerful to see, you know, these incredibly resilient, you know, men and women that have been through that. And I parallel that with uh, a back injury I had a few years ago, tore my back, you know, spent initially again, I was offered meds and band-aids, you know, physical band-aids. And I was like, no, that's not how you fix trauma. And it doesn't, you know, mentally or physically. And it took, you know, it was horrible and it was painful and it sucked, but I was able to address the underlying reasons why I'd even got hurt in the first place. So when I rehab myself back, 
my whole body, including my back, was stronger than it ever had been prior to the injury. And I think that's the perfect analogy for post-traumatic growth. Yes, it fucking sucks. You know, it's a horrible experience. But when you lean into it and process it and grow from it, not only are you going to be more resilient, but as, as you know, I'm sure you've seen often enough, you're able to be a beacon of light for other people and guide them through yeah. Yeah, hundred percent, man. And those those examples, I think, are really profound. I mean, like to your point, it's not about comparing trauma, but those examples are profound because when we see people do it on the edge of life and death, like it shows that there that that capacity for the human spirit it lives within all of us. Like we can all do that, and I think they just serve as a reference point for us to access within ourselves that level of like awe-inspiring greatness that we all have, you know? And uh, I mean, yeah, Ishmael Bey's stories moved me to tears, man. Reading that book is so powerful, incredible. Absolutely. Well, the Fear Foundation that you started. So let's kind of t- take those two groups. I'd love to hear more about. So tell me firstly with the sex trafficking, what are you seeing, you know, with what are these, you know, where are these women from? What are they being put through by who? And how are you able to, to help? So we've worked with just one very, very small group in in Bombay, India, where they're either uh, young women who've been trafficked or daughters of sex workers who've all gone through their fair share of hell and in some capacity other their their moms or they've been trafficked. And so it's a very small group in just one section of, of India. And we we've supported them through one obviously finances, but also like the privilege for me is when I go spend time with them. I mean, these girls are just the most amazing human beings you'll ever meet. Like what they've been through and how they've transcended that and who they've become as a result, their resilience is awe inspiring. But India and Nepal, actually, to your point about sort of the, the that Nepal that India Nepal border is the most traffic border in the world. So that is that's what I that's what I have been led to believe. So there's a lot of that kind of thing happening. I mean, it's happening all over the world as we know, but it's that border from what I understand is the most traffic border in the world. So right now with a very small organized group there that we're just helping these girls kind of, um, re because the, the friend who started the organization that we're supporting, it's a, like what, what she wanted to do is, you know, what the problem is, many of these girls who come out of this, they'll often go to jobs, like they'll come out, they'll be rescued. Firstly, it's a very small that are rescued. So the fortune ones who are rescued, they will, they're often like, told that all they can essentially do is like a sewing job or something like that. And not that there's anything wrong with a sewing job, but the world places these limitations on them that because you've gone through this now, you're kind of a victim for life. And really that's the best you can do. And that's fucking not remotely true. Like these women are again, absolute warriors. And so this, this, this friend of mine who's running this group, Karanthi in Bombay, it's showing them and like, and they're doing amazing things. So many of them gotten scholarships all over the U S and the UK. There's this one young girl who's like become a Zumba instructor and she now teaches Zumba in the slums of India as well. And it like, you see her light up when she dances It like, just, it's the most beautiful thing, man. So that's one, one organization we support. We've supported these group of former child soldiers in West Africa as well, doing some rehabilitative work for them and like building schools in Liberia and in West Africa. And so the foundation is like our goal at the foundation is to support people on the darkest edges of society, people who are on like, who don't have the means to have, like they don't have the freedom to pursue their own worthy struggle because they're either, you know, refugees or living in war-torn countries or poverty or, you know, people who've been sex trafficked, like people who are just on, who've experienced the absolute darkness, the worst of the human condition and saying, how do we bring them out to that to the point that now they can pursue their path now they can live like what all of us want man like fine living like what i say is the way i describe it is to find live and love our worthy struggle 
is our path. I call it your worthy struggle because you will struggle and that's not a bad thing. So it's your worthy struggle. What is that? Like who's, what's the struggle? What's the path worthy of who you are and who you want to be? So we help people. The foundation, the vision is the foundation kind of brings people out of those darkest corners where they don't have the freedom to choose their struggle to now. And then the rest of Fearvana, the, the sort of world that I'm building around it is to help them actually find, live and love their worthy struggle. Beautiful. Well, speaking of Fearvana, so, so what made you write the book? Um, did you find an element of healing writing it? And then, and then also, you know, if you want to expand on, you know, the principles of the book, so get people interested in, in purchasing themselves. Sure. Yeah. So what made me write it was when I started to heal this, this healing process of myself and, you know, what I was talking about, sort of the demonization of post-traumatic stress, of fear, of, of anxiety, I wanted to combat that. Like, this is like, this is that to me is the greatest problem in the human condition is our negative relationship to suffering. Because if you think about like, if we, if we fall in love with suffering, if we can, as, as I like to say, suffer well, inevitably, whether life punches us in the face or whether we're pursuing a worthy challenge, we're going to be able to experience more bliss in the day-to-day content of this human experience. And that's ultimately what we want, right? When you dig to the core of everything, what we want, call it happiness, inner peace, fulfillment, whichever word you want to use, that's what we seek, right? So the greatest problem in our barrier to getting this thing we seek is our negative relationship to suffering. And if we can fall in love with it, inevitably each one of us can live a more blissful life because, and a blissful life doesn't mean pain will go away. It just means you can find beauty and and, and bliss in that pain. So what made me write it was as a way to help people reframe their relationship to fear, to suffering, to struggle, to anxiety, to adversity of any kind, and to you to fall in love with it. Like that's the fundamental ethos of Fearvana is how do we turn like the, so fear Nirvana is fear and Nirvana, two seemingly contradictory concepts, right? Fear and Nirvana are believed to be opposites. Nirvana is bliss, enlightenment, the, sort of the the epitome of, of 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 bliss at the highest level, whereas fear is this demonized emotion, right? How often do we say fear and love are the two only two ways of being? Like you can either choose from love, choose from fear, and I think that's complete garbage. Like fear is not the antithesis of love; it's not the enemy of love. Fear is actually an expression of love. So what I wanted to do was help people reframe that relationship so they could experience more bliss, and that's what had me write the book was just taking a combination of my own life experiences, tons of research in neuroscience and psychology and spirituality, interviewing some incredibly amazing human beings and putting this together. And and to your answer, your question about it was without a doubt, an extremely cathartic process for myself. I definitely healed a lot of myself reading it. I learned more about my topic because inevitably when you teach, you learn more because now you have to create structures around that. What is otherwise just tons of knowledge and you're, you know, that you're bombarding into your like content you're consuming. Now you have to create it in a structured way to put a book together. So it was cathartic, you know, spiritually, I learned so much in the process. And uh, ultimately, I've been blessed to say that it's been, you know, making a great impact. All the profits in the book go to charity as well. So all the profits go to the foundation and to some of these causes that I've been mentioning we support. Um, and really, it was that's that's what the essence of it is that how do we like there's like how do we turn fear into something beautiful? How do we develop a positive relationship to suffering and then use that to find, live, and love our worthy struggle, to to stay on that path and to keep experiencing bliss on the inevitable journey, on the ine- like on the inevitable ups and downs of of the human experience, and to keep keep to keep to recognize that those downs are not going to go away, but they're part of it. And it's not just like embracing suffering, but in the end, seeking suffering. Like once we okay, we've gone through some shitty experiences in life, let's say, right? We've gone through trauma. Now, once you come out of that, you have to channel it. So seek it in your worthy struggle. Like today I run ultra marathons and that's just an exercise in suffering. (laughs) It's absolute hell, you know, or polar exploration is pure misery, (laughs) mountain climbing. You know, these are things that are just absolute suffering, but I'm not saying everybody needs to do that. Like find your own worthy struggle, but that's mine. Like that's how I now seek it. And there is 
even in the pain, there is such bliss. Like that is my own version of suppression, expression of fear of Vana. So the idea is to help people find their own path of fear of Vana, whatever that means and whatever that looks like for them. Yeah, well, it's, it's very powerful. And I, I love martial arts. I do CrossFit. I mean, there's, there's some, some, definitely some areas of discomfort that I put myself through. Yeah. But, but I think it's interesting because if you look at modern society, especially in Western society, we are so comfortable that we have to really put more energy. You know, if you were outside, 300 years ago, the elements, your, your, you know, manual labor, your, your hunting and foraging would absolutely put you through a lot of misery. But now, you know, I can literally, especially post COVID, I can get alcohol, pizzas, whatever brought to my door and we could just keep chatting while I shove it in my face <laughs> with my <laughs> AC on. So, <laughs> right. it, you know, I think there's, there's never been a time that it's more important to seek discomfort, especially if you're in one of our professions where when lives are in the balance, you may be in deep, deep discomfort. And if you're not constantly putting yourself not only physically discomfort, but also, you know, mental fear, um, then, you know, you're setting yourself up for failure when, when someone really needs you. People's lives are on the line. Exactly. And, you know, it's kind of this weird paradox to this comfortable world we live in is that as a result, we're more miserable than ever before. You know, <laughs> we're more comfortable, but we're more miserable because Absolutely. if you don't, if you don't seek out a worthy struggle, struggle is going to find you anyway. So the question to always ask yourself, like at any point in life, you are at a crossroads, any moment we're sitting, any moment, there's a crossroads happening right then. Right. And you get to decide which struggle am I willing to endure? And so that's why I always like tell people, like suggest to people is always be willing to ask yourself that question. Like you could work this job you hate or quit to start a business. You could stay in this relationship or quit and be sing- or, or leave and be single. Any crossroads, you're going to suffer. And so instead of chasing just what the, the, the feel good element, because it's easy to handle life when you feel good. But what's going to break you is when you, is this will, the level of suffering you're willing to endure. So the question asked is, what suffering, which, which struggle am I willing to endure? And constantly asking that question will one, get you clear on what, what this, what the, what path that's, what struggle that path entails. And then you can say, okay, you know what? I'm going to suffer one way or the other. Like I know, man, I know people in my family who, who have more money than, you know, generations know what to do with. And they're miserable, man. Like, cause they're comfortable. They've not pursuing their worthy struggle. They're more miserable than ever before. Like I can promise you this. And you know this, if you don't seek out a struggle, you're going to suffer anyway. And that suffering I've experienced it firsthand too is far worse. That, that raw existential suffering that literally envelops your very soul uh, of not doing, of not living your purpose, of not doing what you were more meant to be on this earth for, that suffering is fucking so destructive. It is so horrific. There's no words for it. But if you seek out the suffering and you will struggle, you will go through pain. The bliss in that pursuit is, is like the suffering is far more, is worth it because the rewards, not just on the other side, but even through the process are absolutely a million times and the suffering is far less than the other kind and the rewards are a million times more rewarding than anything you could possibly imagine when you found that worthy struggle saying this is who i am this is who i want to be this is my path and you give your heart and soul and you give your world you know you you let it consume your spirit and you pursue that that's that's bliss that's fear of honor Beautiful. Well, when you were in the interview with Michael Gervais, who I had on as well, you had mentioned that you were about to go into a darkness retreat. So um, I would love to hear an explanation of what that is. And, and now, you know, here we are, the other side of it, what your experience was. Yeah. So a darkness retreat, what I did was seven days in pitch darkness, silence and isolation. So 24 seven, it's so dark, you cannot see your hand in front of you, complete darkness. And what inspired me to go in was I had gone through a fairly challenging divorce before this, and uh, I broke my sobriety, and I did not like that. 
needless to say, I didn't like that part of myself. I didn't like that. That's who I was. So I wanted to do something to go deeper within myself to look for some answers. And a darkness retreat, like everything I do, is kind of an extreme way to do it. But <laughs> that's kind of who I am. I'm going to pursue the you know the craziest potential way to do it. But it was really it. It what drew me to it is. When you're sitting in pitch darkness, you have nowhere external for consciousness to go. Like you can't look at the world and say, that's a wall, that's a door. You have nowhere external to go but within. And there's something beautiful about that experience. Like it's, I mean, it's intense. It's a daunting journey, but it's a profound journey. And so 24-7 in darkness for seven days, you know, I got a lot out of it. Like I was actually journaling in the dark and I got answers to questions that I've been wrestling with for a long time, like, and I'm not saying my answers are right. I don't know if there's a right answer to some questions like, what is God? What does God mean? Who are, you know, what's the nature of God? But answers that satisfied me, what, what does enlightenment mean? Why, why are we here? What's the meaning of life? You know, I also processed a lot of my own stuff that was still, even though at this point now, like I had navigated a lot of my demons. Fear of Honor was already out, like the book, like navigate a lot of my demons in terms of the war. But what was still very evident when I was sitting in the dark room was this, like, residual guilt of my place in life like why do i get to be happy when i mean right now while you and me are having this conversation there are people in absolute hell right now there are people in war zones people in refugee camps people who are being trafficked in hell on earth and i've always struggled i don't well i had always struggled with why do i how can i be happy when that's happening like what right what why do i get this life you know what have i done to deserve it because i was born to good parents and like to, in India, I automatically was blessed with a million times op- more opportunities than a kid I met in Liberia who was born into a village who wants to go to med school, but more than likely never will because he was born in a war-torn country with absolute poverty. And why? Why? why what, what difference? You know, what made us different just because I was born when I was born? So I managed to kind of confront a lot of that stuff, bring it to the surface, process it, work, do something about it, find some answers on the other side of it. But, you know, some of the, mo- the more kind of mystical experiences that I experienced was seeing a blinding white light in a dark room, the brightest white light I've ever seen in my entire life in a sitting in a dark room. I was literally touching my eyelids like this because I couldn't tell if they were closed or open. I was covering my eyes because I felt like I needed an eye mask and it's blinding white light. And throughout the darkness retreat, you actually see these light shows because what happens, they say, and that's why you, that's why it's important to be in pitch darkness where you can't see a hand in front of you. Your brain starts to release DMT. This is one of the primary ingredients in ayahuasca. So you kind of experience these hallucinogenic type journeys that are, I mean, awe-inspiring, you know, to see things like that. I had many other, these profound meditations of seeing like a burning red light, you know, and uh, just stuff like that. But I would have to say sort of the most profound, the most powerful thing out of the entire seven days of darkness was the moment when I came back into the light for the first time. When I first took off that mask after seven days of darkness, it is hard to describe what the world looked like through those eyes. I was moved to tears and remember thinking two thoughts that I wish I could look at the world every day through these eyes. And the other thought was I felt this deep sense of not just like a I feel grateful for, but like from a core of my soul, this deep sense of gratitude for every bit of pain and suffering I'd ever experienced in my life. Because in a very visceral way, I got to experience in that moment that you cannot really see the light. You cannot truly know the light unless you have been in the dark. The wor- I would never have been, I would never have been able to open the door to a world that looked the way it looked in that moment had I not spent seven days in the darkness. And of course, that applies to the, to life. Like, had we, have we, without having gone into the deepest, darkest spaces and the recesses of my own soul and confronting my demons, I will never have able to experience what I believe to be the version of God to, to divinity at the level that it has. And the darkness retreat reveals some of these things in a very visceral, 
like literal way where you see it. It's not just an idea in your head. You're literally seeing light coexist with dark. You know, we were talking about this throughout, like the, our demons and our divinity can coexist. It doesn't have to be one or the other, you know, and you're seeing it now in front of you, in front of your eyes. And that's uh, awe-inspiring, man. It was, it was an incredible experience. No, it, it sounds absolutely amazing. And it's funny because all the, the positive DMT stories I've heard on here, especially with a lot of the, the SEAL community, funny enough, a lot of them are going doing Ibogaine and all kinds of different things and healing not only for the, the, the mental health and addiction side, but even the TBI is supposed to be good for that too. Yeah. Um, but it also, you know, we, we talk about fear and we talk about, you know, combat zones and, and fire and discomfort with physical challenges. But I think one of the hardest things for us all to do is, as you said, just sit sit quietly and i think that's why it's just it's one of the most positive things the most rewarding things i think any of us can do is is mindful practice whatever that looks like whether it's hiking on your own you know whether it's sitting you know actually meditating because again you're leaning into the fear that that white noise distracts i know i have it all the time distracts my brain from other things and there's nothing more centering and um grounding than building up that practice of just just sitting quietly with your thoughts and you know allowing all that white noise that repetitive in a monologue to slowly wash away yeah i think stillness is one of our greatest fears as human beings it's not a fear that if you ask somebody what are you scared of i don't think any it'd be a rare few actually answered with stillness but i would argue that most human beings are absolutely terrified of stillness stillness and we do everything to distract ourselves. Like another Carl Jung quote, because I love Carl Jung, he says that people will do anything no matter how absurd to avoid confronting their own soul. And it is so true. We do everything to distract ourselves. So going, I mean, darkness retreat, I, I could not, I think everybody will get benefits from it. And I understand that's an extreme version, so you don't have to do that. But even to your point of being still, mindful meditation and practicing just spending some time with no distractions, it's hard because now you're opening up those doors that you're otherwise just keeping shut because you're doing everything you can to avoid going into those spaces, right? And so opening these doors means the pain's coming out, means the darkness is coming out. And it's and that's why meditation is not inherently often, it's, it's perceived as this very like light, blissful experience, but it can be a dark one too. It can be a challenging one because you're opening, again, some potentially painful doors. Like I read about, well, I didn't read my, the, actually the lady who runs the dark retreat told me about this one woman who had come into the dark retreat and was like working a corporal job, like didn't think too much was wrong, got into the darkness retreat and she turns out like she had gone through this horrific sexual trauma as a child and all that stuff started showing up to the surface. But she was able to kind of, because now instead of letting it control her, you know, from the subconscious level and defining her life, she was able to bring it to the surface, process it, learn to do something with it. And she came out, quit her corporate job, started a yoga studio, like changed her life, you know, because it brought the surface by being still with ourselves. So I think, yeah, I think it's one of the most important things we can do is to take that time for stillness, especially in a crazy distracted world. And you're going to find things within yourself that you never knew you had. And that's, what's going to give you that opportunity, that, 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 what, that power to attain that next awakening on your evolution. Absolutely. Well, speaking of meditation, Many of us that write books are able to get some, some, you know, some people that we respect to endorse our book or, you know, write a forward. You have a rather unique individual who endorsed yours. So tell me, you know, how you guys were interacted and, and, and about what he said. Sure. Yeah. I was very, very, very blessed, very honored and humbled that the Dalai Lama wrote the forward for my book. And so how that happened, you know, I, it wasn't a warm lead or anything. I didn't have a connect. I, when I wrote the book, Fearvana, it's a very spiritual concept. It's a very, a lot of spirituality in the book. So I was like, okay, who's this? And I'm an, un, like this point, unknown author, no brand, no platform, quote unquote, nobody kind of thing, you know? So 
who's going to read this book, right? And I believe I had a lot of value to add, but nobody knew me or anything about me. So how could I get somebody to endorse it, to validate this concept? And who would be better? Who is the sort of leader of the spiritual world? The Dalai Lama, right? So immediately when that thought entered my mind, I was like, yeah, there's no way. Who am I? It could never happen. And I ended up, I was very blessed. My first endorsement was from Seth Godin, another man I greatly respect. And he, when he, then that happened, I was like, okay, you know, I'd build some confidence. I was, why not try? What's the worst that could happen? So I reached out at first to His Holiness, the the, the, uh, the contact form on the website. That got me nowhere. I didn't hear back for weeks or whatever. So I did a bunch of research and I managed to find one individual name and email address. So instead of just a random form, you know, into the netherworld, an, an, a particular individual reached out to him. I shot a personal video sharing my story, what I've been through, what we want to do with Firavana, what the mission is, all profits are going to charity. This particular, you know, shot a video for the Dalai Lama. This particular monk got my video, connected me to three other monks, finally get to the right person. And over five months, I'm building a relationship with this one monk there. And, you know, the whole time, and this is a point I really want to stress, is that I was going through a lot of doubt, a lot of feelings that they were not responding to my emails. They hate me. They probably hate my book. They think it's garbage. Who am I? All that stuff. But the key lesson there is you don't have to let your thoughts define your actions. You could you could have a thought but not let that be who you are, right? So I would take action anyway. And I would follow up. I would stay in communication, stay in communication. And ultimately, after five months of building the relationship, I was truly blessed. He wrote to me saying kind of – he said, considering everything you've been through and your genuine desire to serve, I'll press your case. And I actually only asked for a one-line endorsement, but I was truly humbled that he wrote – like he, I got a letter in the mail with his holiness, his seal, and his signature. And uh, it's now framed up in the house. And he wrote the forward for the book. And I mean personally and spiritually, it meant the absolute world for me. And that was more than anything. But even as just, I mean, as far as marketing the book, game changer, obviously, too, for an unknown author to have that. So that was very cool. And it was it was a huge honor and, and just so many lessons from that experience as well, you know, that we're not our thoughts. We're not our feelings. We're not our experiences. We are the thinker of our thoughts, the feeler of our feelings and the experiencer of our experiences. So we don't have to let these things that happen inside of us define us. And that was um, a really cool way that it showed up in a, in a, a literal expression of that. That's uh, absolutely amazing. And, and you said about, you know, the, the internal monologue. One thing I've always suffered from, and I don't think it's held me back because I, I ignore him because he's an asshole, but, but my, um, uh, what they call it? Imposter syndrome, that little voice. Like, you know, no one, no one's realized that you don't know what you're doing, that you're useless, that you're not strong enough, you're not fast enough, you're not any of this. Um, but yeah, just, just listening to that going, I hear you. And anyway, <laughs> and then just moving forward yeah. to what you were doing. But that, Oh, that will never happen is the worst, most toxic thing you can do. Like you said, what have you got to lose? Whether it's asking a girl out on a date, whether it's reaching out for a potential job or, you know, trying to write a book. The worst thing that happens is someone says, no, okay, whatever, move forward. But And then you're, you're in the exact same position you were anyway. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. All right. Well, that's so Fear of Honor was your book. Um, I'm going to move to some closing questions. The first one I'd love to ask, are there any other books that you love to recommend to people? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. One of my favorites, I'm sure you've probably heard people recommend this, is Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl is... I mean, that book has just touched my soul, but I'll recommend one more that's perhaps not as well known because that one I think gets recommended a lot. And I, but not that it's not that it doesn't deserve it. It completely deserves all of it. But another one that's really beautiful is a uh, more beautiful than before. How suffering transforms us. It's by it's a uh, by uh, Rabbi Steve Letter. Really powerful book about obviously related to a lot of this, the tough stuff we're talking about. That one's a written other beautiful one. Beautiful. I haven't had that one recommended before, so I will add that to my list. Thank you. Awesome. Absolutely. All right. So then what about a movie and or a documentary that you love? 
movie and or documentary. Uh, so I've mentioned Black Hawk Down. So let me think another one that, uh, you know, one, one, one movie that recently that helped me build my relationship to God and faith was really profound for me. It was Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, Excellent Hacksaw film. Ridge. Yeah. Hacksaw Ridge is a really, really profound one that touched my soul in so many ways. Um, documentary, the one that I actually just recently have been consuming. It's all, uh, I don't think there's a DVD, but you can watch on YouTube is the marathon monks of Mount Hie. It's about these marathon monks that over a thousand days, they run a marathon a day. I mean, it is the most insane feat of human endurance that I've ever come across what they do. I mean, the, there's a lot to it, but one of the more insane parts is they do this nine day thing called a doiri where they go nine days without food, water, or sleep. No sleep. They have. They just sit in a meditative posture. Two monks next to them who like to wake them up if they start falling asleep. Doctors say they should be dead. By all reasonable purposes, they should be dead, but they're not. And that's one element of what they do over this thousand day, what they call the kaihokyo, where they run for hundred, like hundred days over a period of seven years in a row of a marathon a day. I mean, it is unreal what they do. It's literally the most epic feat of human endurance. So there's a great documentary about it on YouTube called "The Marathon Monks of Mount Hiei." Aren't they wearing like a like wooden shoes when they're doing that too? Like they're wearing these flimsy sandals that break up. Like like it's. I mean, it is insane. They're not. They don't have like hardcore nutrition supplements like I do. They're not <laughs> running in there. They're not running in their badass hundred and fifty dollar running shoes. You know, they're running these flimsy sandals. They're sleeping like two three hours a night off fifteen hundred calories. And it's, I mean, it's, it shatters the human conception of what is even possible. And when I saw this story, I mean, I started devouring book after book on, and I've, it's been inspired me to kind of take on my own version of a Kaihogyo. I'm not about to go to a Japanese monastery anytime soon, uh, but it's inspired me in so many ways because it's shattered your constructs on what you think is possible, you know, because I thought like, I mean, nine days with no food, water and sleep. It is unreal. And you, so that documentary, there's a few different video clips on it. I'll, I'll share them with you, but they're like some of them are anywhere ranging from five minutes to like a 50 full 50 minute documentary and delving into their, uh, into like hearing what they do and then how they think about things. It will like, it will help you build your own constructs on what is capable within your own self because of looking at what the human spirit is capable of. Beautiful. Perfect. Thank you. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Uh, yeah, there's a lot that I can think of, but I'm trying to think of someone who maybe, you know, who maybe you haven't heard of and not just their standard. Yeah. There's actually a friend of mine, Ed Cressy, who I think would be a great guest for your show. He, I believe is the first and perhaps the only person who was hunted by the FBI and then received an award by the FBI for his work. He was like a severe meth addict, like in the darkest corners of meth addiction, got out of it. And now his whole work is around bridging the divides between cops and incarcerated people. Very relevant to your show. Absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and and he's does some beautiful work. We actually met at this experience where we were both volunteering in a maximum security prison in in, um, in California where this group called Hustle 2.0, they do beautiful work. Uh, my friend Jordan Harbinger, he, he, was, he had organized a trip there. And they would do this beautiful work where they're sort of helping men who are incarcerated get parole and heal. And you just go and then you see these stories of these men who – they were born into horrific, violent worlds where if I was born where they were born, I would have been exactly where they were. And they're now defined by their one action, but they are fighting with tooth and nail to like to be more than that. And it's I mean, it was a humbling experience, a very powerful uh, experience for us, all of us who volunteered there. And uh, and that's where I met him. He was a volunteer at that as well. And we've become friends since. Beautiful. Yeah, I would love to make that happen. He sounds like an incredible person. I'll, I'll, I'll make it. He wrote a book called My Addiction and My Recovery. 
I will make that intro. Beautiful. Thank you so much. All right. Well, this is a hard question for you because of all, you just did a seven day darkness retreat. So um, I'm interested in what your answer would be. Um, What do you do to decompress? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Good question. I, I do enjoy movies. Movies are my like shut off way to shut off the, shut off the mind and to relax. Um, so on the rare, you know, from time to time, I'll, I'll take some time off to, to watch a movie because otherwise like I'm either my life basically consists of tire dragging, running, uh, working out or working on the fear of honor. Cause we, even within the fear of honor business, we have multiple different things. We have a fear of honor, super fuel, a fear of honor book. It will let go to the nonprofit, but we have fear of honor, digital programs, fear of honor, clothing line, like what we're launching. So the, between the business and training for these insane feats. Like I'm going to Antarctica for two months this November to do an expedition to the South Pole and climb Mount Vincent. It keeps me pretty busy, but uh, when I do like to shut off, movies are, yeah, they're, they're you know, zone out and something, something, something to to kind of uh, relax. Brilliant. Well, I mean, you are you've done some, you know, quite a, a diverse spectrum of um, physical, you know, challenges. So, what does your training look like overall? Obviously, there's some specificity, but what kind of principles do you use for yourself? A big, a big part of my life right now is the tire, uh, tire dragging because tire dragging is very specific to polar exploration. It simulates the sled that we'll be dragging when we're in Antarctica. I'm also doing a North Pole expedition uh, mid, middle, uh, early next year. So that's a huge part of my life, and it just fucking sucks. There's no two ways about it. I absolutely hate tire dragging, man. It is miserable. I did two hours of it earlier today, and it's just horrible. It's slow. It's tedious. It's a grind. And eventually it can kind of become a little meditative, but that's a big part of it. And then a lot of running because I just like the long distance running so every once in a while like i'm planning one when i get back to phoenix in august uh, i'll do like a 24-hour run in the middle of phoenix summer that'll be sufficiently miserable uh and then you know twice a week i get in some strength training just to complement everything else so especially right now like once i get back from india i mean we're talking like almost 20 to 30 hour training weeks so the training and then the recovery that that demands because if you're going to train so hard you have to recover hard as well it's a good portion of my life goes to to that but i'm training for some pretty epic like never before accomplished expeditions so i I have to uh (laughs) give my all to them if i want to successfully accomplish them and come back alive as well so yeah so uh the tire dragging running and strength training are kind of and then you know i'll go for a hike every once in a while with a pack as well just like if i'm going with friends and stuff like that and then what about nutritional principles they, you know, I keep it very, I don't follow sort of like a one plan, like keto, paleo or anything. This is very simple. Like, you know, you do the standard eat healthy. Uh, but what's kind of unique with polar exploration is that you need to do all of this while you're kind of fat. Because when I like right a month before going to Antarctica, I'm going to put on like, I'm going to fatten up like crazy because you, you, no matter how much you eat in Antarctica, you can't consume enough calories to as much as you're burning per day. When you're skiing 10, 12 hours a day in, you know, minus 40 degree type temperatures, you're burning a ton of calories and you have calories and you not consume that. So you need to go out there with some weight. So I hold on to a little level of fat and the challenge is it's hard to eat that much healthy food and stay fat when you're also training an absurd amount. Because like you just ha- it's, you just can't physically put like a that much salad in your mouth, you know what I mean? So <laughs> sometimes I gotta eat crap to really stay, <laughs> just to stay a little a this layer of fat on me. But like right before Greenland, for example, uh, the month before Greenland, I was eating cheesecakes and cookies, literally stuffing my face with that, and I put on 17 pounds of fat, and I lost 20 pounds of it in Greenland. So it's you know it's a general healthy thing. Well, I'm actually about to start working with a nutritionist to really just systematize the whole thing because I've been all over the place right now. I was moving from New Jersey, been in India, been on Denali, so I haven't like my nutrition's kind of been everywhere. But it'll it'll have like a very clear system to it, like a more 
morning smoothie, which is my usual. It's always a morning smoothie. And it's a hefty smoothie. It's like a thousand calorie smoothie. So it's a beast of a smoothie. And then, you know, like a lunch and a dinner kind of thing. But every once in a while, I'll have to make sure to eat on health, like eat just whatever to stuff calories and hold on to the precious fat I need as a polar explorer. It's really weird because you're training endurance, you're training strength, and you have to do it while you're fat. All of those things don't go well together, you know? <laughs> so polar exploration is a really kind of weird thing to train for. Uh, <laughs> I see a QVC DVD set where you, you can promote your weight loss plan. All you have to do is just drag a sled through Antarctica. <laughs> Problem solved. You lose a ton of weight, I promise. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, then we you know we've talked about the book. You talked about you know your nonprofit. We talked about you know the other elements of your work. So, where's the best place for people to find all those online? Uh, you can find me on social media, like Instagram, YouTube, as Fearvana. That's F E A R V A N A. The book is on Audible, Kindle, paperback. Uh, Fearvana on Amazon. All the profits go to charity, as I mentioned. And then my website is fearvana.com. You can find me on there. I do have a lot of trainings that I go a lot deeper into, like my self dialogue on how I navigate the lows of life and the pain cave, as I say, when I enter those pain spaces, uh, whether physical, mental, or emotional. And uh, and yeah, you can find me in all those spaces, Fearvana. Beautiful. Actually, I want to say thank you. I mean, not only has this been a great conversation, we've been all over the place from sex trafficking to darkness retreats and everywhere in between. Um, but I mean, you, your story is incredibly powerful. I know it's, it's going to be, you know, important to a lot of people. I literally just ordered your book today. I've been traveling myself for a couple of weeks. So I'm looking forward to reading that myself. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the work that you're doing, I think the altruistic element to your project is, is admirable as well. So thank you for being so generous with your time and, and coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure.